Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Around 750 million people live on the European continent. So what about it? What will its future look like? Will there ever be a United States of Europe? For this and more, you will hear from European thought leaders, artists, civil society representatives, and all those who care about its future. You will receive key insights into the ways Europe is changing and how your voice can be part of this. I am Paolo De Stilo, and you're listening to Europe Matters. So today I'm joined by Dragos Christian. He is a Romanian stand-up comedian who started his comedy journey in the wonderful country of Singapore, one of the most vibrant stand-up scenes in Asia. You gotta believe it, it's a pretty cool city to start off your career. And having done shows in Singapore, Malaysia, Hong Kong, Bangkok, Estonia, Spain, England, Czech Republic, Romania, he has now amassed an audience of over 300,000 followers. Make sure to follow him on TikTok. With a very unique style of comedy that can be described as dark but cute, he recounts with his experiences traveling all over Asia and Europe. So, uh, Dragos, thank you for accepting uh, this invitation. Uh, where are you currently based at? Uh, hey man, I'm in uh, currently in Berlin at the moment, Germany, Berlin. And are you doing a lot of uh, stand-up comedy right now? Yeah, we're doing a lot. Ever since like the lockdown has been lifted at the start of June, we've been doing a show a day, or sometimes even two shows a day here in Berlin. Uh, so basically, I haven't had a chance to have a break until yesterday. Yesterday was my first break in like three weeks. So we're doing a show every night. That's incredible. So you're finally having a break after a long time of uh, doing a shows, but... How was it actually during the COVID pandemic? Was it how how, do, how does a comedian actually stand up during a, a pandemic? Well, it was quite difficult for a lot of people because, of course, you can't do stand-up comedy um, in, in bars and online. The Zoom shows are not quite the same. People were doing Zoom shows or doing Skype shows or whatever, but it was not quite the same experience. So a lot of uh, comedians kind of, you know, ended up refocusing. Some of them found jobs. I particularly ended up doing some writing for Comedy Central for a little uh, YouTube uh, program they have. 
and then I basically have a lot of footage because I, I film every set I do and I put it on this hard drive. So I ended up having like 5 terabytes of uh, footage from the past year, from 2020, 2019. And I just spent a lot of time just editing that footage and putting it online on YouTube and TikTok and Instagram in, uh, you know, so as to grow my social media presence. And when did you actually start up uh, being a stand-up comedian? I think I started around 2016. I was in Singapore at the time. I was working for like this big tech company. Uh, and there was a scene there, you know, so one guy was like, hey, do you want to try the open mic here? And I was like, yeah, why not? And then I just gave it a go. And uh, people were laughing. So I was like, oh, maybe there's something to this. Can we say that it's now your uh, full-time job? Yeah, it's, it's doing it mostly full-time at the moment. So I've been doing it full-time for about, uh, I guess, three years, since 2019. So you started off in Asia, right? And um, and then you went back to, of course, Europe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How was it the difference between Asia and Europe in the sense of doing stand-up comedy? Did you have uh, difficulties entering the various scenes or did you find it that it was more open here in Europe, for example, or was it more difficult? Well, I basically had to throw away most of my material because the material that I was using in Asia wasn't necessarily translating to Europe. And in Europe, I moved to Estonia. I was working for this company in Estonia. And uh, the Estonian stand-up comedy scene, there was, uh, there was a scene there. They had like two free open mics uh, a week. Uh, one of them was in English a month. But then even the Estonian ones, I would go and do comedy in English. And it was all right. They were, they were pretty receptive. But um, I ended up moving to Berlin because the scene in Estonia was just too small, too small for, for getting better. Uh, but they were they were pretty chill, pretty accepting. There was not uh, there wasn't any drama or any kind of the sorts. You know, they're always it's always like a small group of people. Maybe there were like twenty, thirty people max that were doing stand up there. So it was quite a close, um, close knit of people. Most of your comedy is in in English, right? Or do you also do in uh, all of it? All of it is in English, right? Yeah. So your audience is mostly internationals, people from academia or from international big corporations. Or do you also have local people joining in your shows? Uh, I mean, it depends. For example, if you're in a place like Berlin, there's a lot of local people as well, because, you know, it being the capital, it being a very tech hub, there's a lot of people moving from like Munich, Hamburg, Cologne, Frankfurt to, to work, study here. There's also a lot of artists in Berlin. So there's a lot of locals as well, but it's a lot of, uh, <clears throat> it's a lot of, um, a lot of the people tend to be more internationally, uh, have, have more of an international mindset. The Europeans, a lot of times, some expats but people with more of an international outlook on the world. And because it is in English, they tend to be, you know, because, again, with English in Germany or whenever you're in Europe, you already have, like, a barrier to entry, a barrier of entry to enjoying the, the art form, right? So then people would technically would need to be fluent in English, and a lot of times if they're fluent in English, then this translates to the fact that they're somewhere, you know, uh, lower middle to upper middle class uh, and upwards that are, you know, working in, let's say, professional jobs, maybe academia. Uh, maybe students or, you know, obviously the younger generations, the younger generation is much more fluent in English. So it tends to be somewhere between like 20 to 40 in terms of year, uh, years, uh, year range. Uh, and, and yeah, mostly professional students or some form of artists. When you started off, did you feel uh, more Romanian or did you feel already European at the time? Well, I do have some jokes about this as well, because I started, uh, I started, in Asia as a Romanian, right? So I think the interesting thing about being Romanian in Asia is that nobody knows what Romania is, right? So then they automatically (laughs) default you to European, which was great because, uh, you know, moving from Romania to other parts of Europe, they automatically default you to Romanian, (laughs) European, you know what I mean? 
So it was an interesting perspective that they would view me as European, and then obviously I kind of started leaning into that a bit more. I started explaining to them you know, the, 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 the position of Romania within the European Union, I guess, at that time, especially if it was like 2004, uh, 2000, I, my time in Asia was like 2014, 2016. I started 2016. Uh, it was still about like 10 years, nine years since Romania joined the European Union. So there were still, for example, in the UK restrictions to Romanians joining and working and, and so on and so forth. And there were still some tensions with uh, France, Italy, you know, there's some degree of um, resistance to, you know, Romanian immigration, I guess. So I was kind of using that as an analogy. So one of my jokes would be like Romania is kind of like the Mexico of Europe. <laughs> so if if Romania is the, the Mexico of Europe, did this uh, chance of being actually in Asia help you out to feel more comfortable in uh, with your nationality or... Yes, to some degree, yeah. and then you know, obviously, there's always there's always some like uh, power dynamics between between different countries. So, for example, when I was in Singapore, they wouldn't necessarily get the Mexico of Europe uh, analogy as well. But then I would explain Romania as being the Malaysia of Europe, and then Sing Singaporeans kind of you know look down on Malaysia uh, as it were. Okay, so so you use a lot of your personal identity in your shows, your um, your background in, in Romania. Can I ask you? Until when did you actually live uh, in Romania and when did you start actually moving around? So I uh, I was in Romania until 2007 uh, and in 2007 I turned 18 and then I went to the UK for university. So I moved out in 2007, that, what's, that's like almost 13 years now, 13 years, 14 years. Yeah, you got lucky, you didn't have the very pricey college tuitions. <laughs> exactly. Like I always tell people it was like such a... So it was like the optimal period because like had it had it uh, right after I finished, they tripled the fees for Europeans and then nationals. Right. It went from like two thousand five hundred a year to twelve thousand or nine thousand. Oh, man, man. Bloody expensive. Exactly. So had that had that been the case, I would have not been able to even entertain the idea of going to the UK. Right. But it was right. You know, the, the right place at the right time. So, so you you graduated in uh, political sciences or am I mistaken? I did uh, law and politics. Law and politics. Yeah, because yeah. your your com comedy is also quite political. Uh, you also go into themes. You always try to pinch out hot topics from different countries. How how do you manage actually going from one country to the other and and pinpointing the sore point of your guest? Because the way you do your comedy is by also involving your audience, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess we try to like you know obviously you can't go too deep into the the issues of a particular country because then you have to explain and people might not be aware so you just try to figure out what are the pieces of news that are available um, you know at like more of a macro level like what's what's on the BBC you know what's on Euronews uh, like on the front page so you don't really go too deep into the issues of a particular country like if you look at Poland obviously the whole abortion thing uh, has been like a massive uh, massively publicized and massively known issue around Europe, that would be a topic I would pick on. Uh, maybe if you look at uh, the asparagus situation in, in the asparagus pickers and Germany dynamic, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but you know during the pandemic, there was a special exception made for travel uh, in the European Union while there was a lockdown across the whole, uh, you know, the, the whole kind of block. But the exception was for uh, Romanian asparagus pickers to come to Germany and pick asparagus because there was no one to pick the asparagus. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> exactly like what the fuck. And obviously, there was no proper healthcare or anything of the sort provided. So, you know, try to touch on these topics. Um, and kind of like, I, I try to read the news as much as possible, and I get most of my news from Reddit. So then like the Reddit Europe, Reddit Europe News, or like BBC or something of the sorts. But it's it's tough to find an unbiased news source nowadays. 
Yeah, so Reddit is your main uh, news source, we could say. Is uh, how how can I imagine this uh, digital forum like area? It's, what what kind of news do you get? Like, is it uh, filtered out by uh, people that decide what to share, or do they put it in a funny way? I don't know. Well, there's a there's a subreddit called Reddit World News, and then people just upvote or downvote if the, the particular news is interesting or not. And then once you click on the article, you can read the article, whatever it is. But then the thing is, you can also go into comments and see like the discourse, right? Like what are the arguments pro, what are the arguments against? So you can kind of get um, a really fast summary of people's positions on this particular topic. Uh, and uh, again, it is there's people on the internet. So there tends to be people from both sides of the spectrum, right? Like uh, whether they're particularly like right wings or white wing, uh, left wing, whatever. So they tend to kind of just hash it out in the comments. Sometimes civil, <laughs> in a civil manner. Most of the times not. Yeah, and, and um, if we look back at the past year and a half, how do you think Europe actually has managed the whole pandemic uh, situation? Well, it's kind of been a bit of a you know one for well Europe as a as a particular unit they've tried to kind of help as many people as possible within the European Union and then you have the situation with the UK negotiating vaccines uh, in their favor and you know basically the UK the EU uh, the European Union kind of getting left behind because the different elements of bureaucracy and everybody going on holiday when they were supposed to negotiate vaccine vaccine deals so I didn't think to see how how kind of that played into. Uh, uh, into different kind of uh, right-wing political um, ideologies, kind of like discourse, because they were like, oh, look, the European, the European doesn't work. This is the example. The vaccines are not getting distributed. Only the rich countries are getting them, so on and so forth. But then you had a situation where, like, you know, now, like, for example, the past couple of months, Romania sold a million doses of uh, the Moderna vaccine to Denmark because they were expiring, and then people in Romania no longer get, want to get vaccinated. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic. But uh, I think, if anything, you know, it's... Um, it's been fun to watch. Like this was a, a real stress test for the European Union uh, in, in the in the past decade. You know, obviously you had the financial crisis, which is back in 2000, 2007, 2008. But this is, I think, at that time I wasn't that tuned in into European politics. But now I think it's uh, uh, it's my first kind of like European crisis to kind of observe in real time. And um, yeah, I think it's. It's still a lot to a lot of work to do, right? For example, there's no yeah, there's the Euro Pass where like you know you can kind of show your vaccine to travel around, but like if you look at Germany, the way that they implemented the Corona app that they have here, it's much better than they did in Romania. So there's still no, there's still each country is still kind of like every man for themselves with their own capabilities, I guess. It hasn't been like centralized for uh, maximum benefit for all the countries like for example you know germany if you could if you could scale the germany app that we have here for corona because uh, i don't know if you're familiar you can use it to scan at the bars it shows you what the incidence rate is you can log your activity and it's much better for tracking uh so if you could scale this to the whole european union then i think we would have the whole thing under control much faster and much easier but obviously you know budgetary reasons or whatever uh, it's probably not that possible. So you have countries like I don't know, Bulgaria, Romania, Croatia, maybe even like uh, the Nordic countries doing uh, their own kind of development for this particular platform. I don't know how well that is going. So I'm blabbering on a bit, but that's kind of like um, how how I looked at it in the past couple of weeks. And and did you manage to travel throughout this past year and a half, or did you stay stuck up in home? So. 
I went to May. I went to Spain to do some comedy shows there because uh, Spain was uh, relatively open throughout the whole pandemic. Uh, I mean, not super open, but then the bars could still stay open till 5 p.m. Um, throughout the whole pandemic, so they never closed. So then people could do shows in the bars. So I went there to some shows. Uh, we were there for two weeks, and then in the second week they opened shows for the evenings. So for like the until 10 p.m. So we did some shows in the evening as well. And then once we got back to Berlin, two weeks later, 1st of June, they opened up here as well. So that was my first travel experience so far. And at the end of August, I'm going to Malta because my, my parents live in Malta. Uh, that's beautiful. So you, your first experience in traveling was actually in the in end of May, beginning of June. Um, and how was that to actually experience for firsthand uh, the travel pass and everything? Did you find it obstructing or did you find it uh, all right to as a kind of uh, the lesser evil uh, for surviving the, this pandemic well it wasn't the travel pass at the moment because i hadn't gotten vaccinated yet just because of uh, the vaccine wasn't available but basically we had to get pcr tests right so then that effectively makes the whole the pcr tests were more expensive than the flights because we had to pay 75 euros here in Berlin for the PCR test to go to Spain. And then from Spain, we didn't know you had to pay 120 euros to get back to Berlin. So it ended up being like, I don't know, maybe a quarter of the cost of the, of the whole kind of situation that the travel and was, it was vaccine, it was the PCR test. And is, is uh, Britain still in your mind uh, or since Brexit, is it, I'm sorry? Is, is, uh, is the UK still in your mind or is it already? outside of your uh, I, uh, ideals of, of Europe or <laughs> are you ever going to go back there? I mean, I'm, I'm probably going to go back to do some shows, but I don't, I see it more as an opportunity to be honest with you. Like doing, if you look at the UK from a standup perspective, the scene is massive, very mature, but also very saturated with comedians. Right. And on the other side of the spectrum, English standup comedy in Europe is like almost non-existent. If you, if you look at Berlin, right. If Berlin is like probably the biggest scene. We have like 45 open mics in English and shows a week, which is great. But then the rest of the places around Europe, there's a lot of English speakers, a lot of people that consume uh, standup comedy and there's almost, no scene in their cities so i feel like it's the the whole kind of european block is up for taking with regards to this particular industry stand-up comedy in english and i think it's much easier and much more preferred to build an audience across europe than in the uk yeah that, that's quite interesting so there is a upcoming field or area that that is kind of an explored do you feel like you're one of the pioneers in this area right now um, definitely. I mean, I think I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't kind of refer to myself as a pioneer, but I think now that you put it into context and you look at it from that perspective, I think I am the first person to have done like a, a tour around Europe of over like 70 cities, uh, of purely in Europe where I prefer stand comedy in English. And all of this was done without any form of agent. There was no company helping me do it. It was just self-produced and self-promoted. So I think it's definitely given people uh, something to think about with regards to like, you know, when focusing their careers on Europe or not. Of course, there's a lot of work to be done because the, there is no cohesive platform or even a, um, let's say, a TV channel for European Union in English. You know what I mean? Every country has their own uh, uh, basically TV channel that they promote their own local talent, but there is no there is no platform for promoting European talent by Europe. You know what I mean? At the European level. So unless you look at the private sector, which is like YouTube or, or TikTok or Instagram, which is what I've been using so far, right? But I do feel like uh, if we want to talk about like, you know, Europe matters, I think from a cultural, from a cohesive European culture, 
Uh, I don't think it's been a priority for the European Union to create like a platform for Europeans to share the content into other European countries in English. You know, there hasn't been any particular focus on that. So we have to kind of basically work with what we have and build everything from scratch. Do, do you think now that uh, the UK has left actually gave, gives more space for the English language to play a role in uh, Europe? I mean, I think so. You know, whether we like it or not, there's uh, the English is the most spoken language at the moment, I think, well, after Mandarin Chinese, right? So it is the the language that we all kind of Spanish as well, of course, yeah. Uh, and I think for Europe, it makes more sense to kind of focus on building more uh, media institutions in English, promoting more, and it's the only way we can all communicate across without any issues, right? In Europe, so I think, yeah, it makes it gives it, there's room for growth. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff you can grow into that direction, but uh, how do you do it? Uh, we I was even talking to a friend of mine, like, you know, should we apply for European funding for like some company that we're building for events? Or like should we apply some European funding for like um, maybe like for a media type of YouTube type of business promotion? But then, again, even European funding, how do you find it? How do you apply it? Everything so uh, and, and even if you find it, it's boggled in documentation and paperwork, right? So it's might might as well just build something from scratch in the private sector. So would you like to to build your own European Comedy Central? I mean, I think that would be ideal, to be honest. There is a European, uh, there's, the, the stuff that I've been doing during the pandemic has been with Comedy Central Germany, where they are basically, the, the, what I was doing is I was writing scripts in English, and then these scripts were getting localized uh, in Italy, in like, you know, Poland and other countries, and basically performed by local artists there. But would, yeah, yeah, there is no Comedy Central Europe that creates content for Europe in English or something of the sort, right? So if there was something like that, whether I want to build it or not, is like, of course, I would be great. It's needed. Do I have the time to build it as opposed to like building up my own my own career? I don't know. But eventually, <laughs> if no one's going to do it, potentially might have to do it. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. It's like the how do you spend, deciding how do you spend your time? Exactly. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
exactly. So, so what is it for you that you've seen in the the past years? What is it, a European identity? I know it's a big question. It's a million dollar question that even uh, European bureaucrats don't know <laughs> to answer. What, what is what have you seen actually in the in the past years that makes a European European? I think, to be honest, at the moment, if you really want to be a pure European, you have to start living in different European countries, even if it's just like, you know, doing an Erasmus or even if it's just going there for a couple of months or something of the sorts. I think the only way to kind of bypass the the national identity supremacy, where like, you know, the French are better, the German are better, the Polish are better, whatever, uh, is to start living in different European countries. And I don't know how that could be accomplished. I think it would be great to have more Erasmus-type uh, projects, more maybe like, uh, you know, how they have like the student exchange for workers exchange as well. Maybe the digital nomad European might be the one that's uh, going to that direction. But I think, yeah, it's it's encouraging more people, not just travel for like two weeks to Berlin or two weeks to Barcelona, but just live there for like six months, maybe seven months. And I think once you have that experience of living in different European countries, you can embrace the whole European identity much uh, much more wholeheartedly, right? Because you've seen how the places are, uh, you've seen how the people react, you've seen how, you, let's say, they interact with you, and you become a bit more open-minded yourself, right? And, and I think it's not just open-minded. You have less fear of the unknown, you know? Yeah. Are, are you afraid of the future? For Europe? Yeah. Uh, I think it should be fine, to be honest, at the moment. Uh, yeah, of course, we had this, this rough patch here with uh, the pandemic and people kind of, you know, being a, become, turning inward a bit. But I think if, let's say, the this whole Delta variant kind of wraps up this year and things <laughs> kind of like go well with the vaccine, I think people will start appreciating you know the whole freedom of movement you know uh, free market thing a bit more so i think we'll be fine but yeah i guess i guess it's also like about maybe continuing the the you know the integration of the european countries within europe right because i think there is still some degree of segregation now between like eastern europe and uh western europe but i think as the and the dynamic now is a lot of talent from Eastern Europe migrates to Western Europe, which I think is good for Western Europe because it creates more uh, more dynamic societies. But for Eastern Europe, is it great? Is it not great? Is it Does it give more room for uh, uh, the right-wing mentality to rise? We don't know. But hopefully, if, we'll see how it kind of develops. I can give you an example now with Romania, for example. Uh, a lot of people have that I know personally have decided to just stay in Romania and Bucharest and not move out because the salaries are, that they've, especially in the tech sector, they've gone up significantly and it's quite comfortable to live there with your family and your friends. But again, it's still dependent. They're still, they, they are still working as operational people in Western startups or American startups or American companies. Do you know what I mean? They're still cogs in the machine and they haven't gotten to the point where they've created their own machines, their own, their own innovative startups, ideas and such. Yeah, so for example, I, uh, I saw people going uh, working for Oracle, working actually in uh, uh, in Romania because the yeah the it's easier to live there and then you get also good a uh, good salary. Um, and it's interesting what you point out no? uh, from Eastern Europe to Western Uni Europe and and in Italy or in Spain, everybody has this idea of a, a North and South divide. So, but not many people talk about the Eastern versus Western uh, Europe. And I think, I think that it's an interesting conception because then it shows a little bit like how uh, people perceive uh, topics and ideas. No, in your case, you, you come from, well, we can say Eastern 
uh, Europe, but maybe you're from from the West for Asia, right? So exactly, the, yeah, exactly, Western Asia. Yeah, yeah. So that that uh, it's interesting how um, different perceptions change the way you see things. And you just sent, said something that I, I found quite interesting, and, and that's is, that is the um, the fact that people have become more introverted or actually have gone a little bit more inwards. Uh, did you notice that also in your uh, stand-up comedies that people were more, uh, felt a little bit more isolated or, or not? I don't know. Well, I think, I think at the moment, you know, people, it's, I think we've kind of gone to a point where, um, you know, this whole pandemic, people are kind of like afraid, oh my God, how do I have savings? Do I have like, there's the, the, the mentality of scarcity kind of swoops back in. So people have like higher appetite for risk. They're trying to be a bit more uh, self, uh, self-preservating. Is that the word? Self-preservating? Yeah. Um, they, they're a bit more cautious of what they can do. So hopefully we'll see exactly how that, because they don't know, like there's, there's more fear in the air and uncertainty, right? So before I think, um, there was more opportunity in the air uh, before the pandemic, but now I think like you know people are like okay if I go to the UK is there going to be a job there they're going to kick me out if I go to Berlin or if I go to the Netherlands there's going to be opportunities for me there you know all the companies have uh, you know they've, they've been cutting back because of the pandemic so there's a bit of uncertainty uh, in the air I think and and I think that might kind of like make people a bit more uh, again reluctant to take risk or interact with new elements in their environment as they would have done before because they're like a bit cautious oh what if this person's bringing if this person traveling from outside or if they're bringing corona or whatever you know what i mean no so it hasn't hasn't necessarily been as present in the stand-up comedy scene but like i'm just i'm just looking at the overall kind of uh environment you know being locked up for like so many months in your own house you kind of tend to you know start building doomsday scenarios and you start to figure that everyone's after you and I've had some interactions like this on TikTok with people leaving comments about like, oh, you know, my country is the best. My, you know, kind of like seeking that uh, safety of their own little nest, of trying to you know, create a level of validation for like, oh, actually, because you know, Greece is doing better than other countries, and, and with the Corona, so we're warmer, so we don't want people to kind of come here and bring the bring the virus or whatever. But um, that's kind of been my interaction with it, if that makes sense. Yeah, and do you notice that maybe uh, your kind of comedy, which is quite dark, um, resonates more with people in this current period? I mean, it kind of helps people release a bit of tension, I guess. Um, and yeah, it's it's kind of like it's a bit it's a bit therapeutical as well because you can kind of talk about terrible things that have happened and then laugh a bit at them now because if you can laugh at, laugh at them, it means you're processing them and you're healing from the trauma. Like I had some jokes about how, like, uh, you know. Um, how do you know the Italians, the, the way that they greet each other is by kissing each other on the cheek, right? I'm like, mwah, mwah. I was like, yeah, it's, I wonder how, I wonder why they had such a hard time at the start of the pandemic, right? <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? It's like this kind of stuff. So they're like, yeah, of course, cult- cultures that are warmer suffered uh, yeah. more from the pandemic at the start, you know, Spain, Italy. Yeah, it was dramatic, man. Uh, it was yeah. awful. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, very intense. And, you know, again, it's traumatic. People have, like, I personally don't know a lot of people that have died from coronavirus, but, you know, I have people at the shows and I ask them and they're like, yeah, you know, uh, my, my grandpa died of coronavirus and we couldn't go to the funeral, so we do the Zoom wake for mm-hmm, him. Yeah. Which is like, like not, it's also funny, but also like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> like, they were all gathered around the, around the computers to look look at the corpse. So what the fuck? You know what I mean? Yeah, and did you have a virtual cake then for, for, the, for the funeral? 
then? I mean, I, I didn't have any deaths in my family, but I'm assuming that they, uh, like, uh, all of my particular grandparents have been, they've already been dealt with by cancer, like, a, a couple of years ago. So they did hang around by, they had to chill with corona. But I'm assuming families that did have that, they probably did have, like, the virtual, ca- the, the the corona cake, the Romanian <laughs> coliva is called. Uh, over how Zoom. was it, the, the coliva? How what was it called? Col- coliva, yeah. It's an orthodox cake. They have it in Greece as well, coliva. Now we, we're talking about death. Death is something very that has actually permeated our uh, uh, news a lot lately, right? And I think so. What what you're doing is a way of lightening it up, but also giving it a, a room space because otherwise people didn't find that space because it was too too depressing, right? Yeah, and you know that's why that's the thing is like people are trying to find stuff online, and you know online on that maybe this is why like this whole I was just talking to a friend of mine yesterday like this whole new wave of content on Netflix is trash, uh, and it's like just like very superficial because I think people are just people need to kind of disconnect a bit, right? And and they just need to forget about uh, like too intense topic or too. That's why you have like all these reality shows about dating and stuff. People just want to like escape, right? Escapism is a big thing now. <laughs> Will you go into that kind of world, uh, or do you, or will you try to stay up your ground? No, I think I'm good. I think I'm good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep the. I'm gonna do my national anthem reviews on YouTube. That's, that's what I'm gonna do. A lot of random nonsense on YouTube. I cre- I'll create my own trash content. <laughs> and okay, yeah, I, what you're just pointing out, not the trash. Um, yeah, that's also a phenomenon that we see in the internet. There's a lot of. There's always been trash uh, uh, everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think it, it's now more? There's definitely more because people feel more emboldened to create it. You know, it's that whole idea of like, what the fuck, people like this? That I can make something shitty like this, right? So like, I think that if the barrier for quality is not that high, then it seems like the barrier for entry is lower, right? So people are like, oh, okay, I can also create this little shitty... Now, that's how I started a YouTube channel because I started a YouTube channel during the pandemic and I was looking at some other people that were just reacting to videos and I was like, what the fuck? This is not even entertaining, but people are watching this and it's getting views. I can do something just as shitty and, and, and get just as many views. And you know what? It worked. <laughs> <laughs> so so you have a, a, a big audience on TikTok and on YouTube as well, yeah. or is it the bigger one on, on TikTok? TikTok. I think TikTok is about 300, 330,000. And I think the discovery mechanism is, is great on TikTok. It's, it's some next level. It's really, you can go there with no following anywhere on any platform. And then if your content is entertaining, you can get a following. Whereas YouTube is more still uh, tied to the Google way of uh, discovery, which is SEO. And you have people have to be searching for something that you do, which means that you can't, for example, if I were to put my stand up on YouTube, nobody would find it because nobody gives a shit about, nobody's searching for dragosh comedy, especially if no one knows me, right? So that's why, for example, the content that I do on YouTube has to be optimized for search, for search engine, which is why I'm doing like National Anthem of Italy reaction or whatever, because you know, I'm thinking people will search for this at least once a year. Yeah, so you have yeah. to go at it with more strategy. So on YouTube, I've got about like almost 12,000 uh, followers, but on TikTok, it's 300, uh, 330 because that's just organic. People are sharing the videos, they're discovering it and so on and so forth. So it's different discovery mechanisms. And I think, yeah, TikTok has been quite good for uh, getting me more discovery and more exposure. And yeah, people coming from the shows as well for to TikTok, and it's quite, it's quite, it's been quite good. Yeah, so all these platforms, they're they all have one thing in common. They're not from Europe, they're or from China, or they're from the USA. Yes. Uh, do you think? So we already discussed that a little bit earlier on whether we should have a European media landscape. Um, do you think that a European media landscape uh, with maybe one platform that could unite? the various um, national platforms or stuff like that. 
can that be a first step towards a United States of Europe? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Because like at the moment, you know, all this content. This is one of one one of the, my issues that I have with like um, all these platforms as well. Like you know, for example, like stand up comedy from the U.S. A lot of Europeans follow stand up comedy from the U.S. just because that's the only one available. And if you look at stand up comedy from the U.S. for a European, it feels like secondhand comedy, right? Because it's not made for you. It doesn't talk about topics that uh, are, are relevant to you. It talks about going to Wendy's. Where the fuck do we have a Wendy's in Europe? You know what I mean? <laughs> You know, so it's like yeah. it's it's so disconnected from the European experience. But then again, in order to create content for Europe, you have to create it in English. And it's every English is everyone's second language in Europe. So in that context, basically, you have to in like kind of like there, there is a strong, you know, uh, barrier to kind of creating content in English because first you have to feel confident enough to speak English. You have to speak it every day. And how are you going to speak it every day if you live if you live in France, right? Or if you live in even in the Netherlands, which is one of the highest uh, English speakers in in Europe, right? People are still not super yeah. confident to create content in English. So you need to kind of show people that look, we can make content in English, and it can be consumed by people in Sweden, people in Bulgaria, whatever, right? But there is no program or there is no platform to do that and uh, i think if you have a bit more of a structure for it to show people that it can be done then more and more people are going to create content in english and it's going to lead to that direction where you have a more cohesive european union and is your audience also european or is it more american or asian well, I can give you the statistics at the moment on my um, on my Instagram on my TikTok. It's quite uh, it's quite diverse actually. I'm looking at the breakdown now. So, like 18% of my audience on TikTok out of this 330,000 people, 18% are from Romania, and that makes sense, right? Because I'm from Romania. Then uh, the other the the next the next one the next top one 10% are from Indonesia, oh, if wow. you can believe it, because I've done some jokes about Indonesia and some of them went viral there. <laughs> Then 8% yeah. are from the United States. Uh, and then afterwards, you have 6% from Germany, 5% from Italy. Then I have another 5% from Malaysia. And then it goes down like with different percentages for different countries in Europe. Okay, so for our listeners, there's a big audience waiting for you if you want to start up something in the media landscape. It doesn't need to be competition with Dragos, <laughs> but something. Yeah, 100%. I think it's, there's, there's enough space for everybody. Yeah. What I said before now about the United States of Europe, do you believe in that kind of uh, idea or do you think it's too American in the way of uh, putting it? I mean, I think I do think I do think it's quite uh, possible and I think it's quite a good way to go. As if you look at if you look at Europe, there's so many different cultures, different different architecture styles, different different ways of thinking. And I think in that context, it does make sense. And I think it is the right way to go because just you can kind of kind of mix it together all these nationalities and get something really cool you get a lot of nice mixes if you look at the u.s a lot of the uh, you know especially like the the east coast a lot of the east coast identity is basically oh i am italian american i am irish american you know i'm greek american there's a lot of these um uh these fragments of europe kind of left in there and that kind of have helped it stick together with some different form of uh, um, identities and different form of characteristics in that idea. And it kind of acted as their strength and as their fallback for um, different kind of, uh, you know, like personalized uh, opinions and, and, and like um, just just attributes, right? So, for example, in Europe, you have the actual Europeans, you know, the Swedish, the Romanian, the Bulgarian, the French, the Portuguese. So if you can kind of get all these different mindsets to work together, people can really 
cover each other's um, uh, blank spots, right? And you can create more innovation. You can create more stuff. You just have to kind of get them all together and you know get them to play around. Wow, that w- that was quite quite deep for uh, yeah of a conversation as well. Uh, we went pretty into a lot of different topics. We looked at a, a European media landscape. Uh, we looked at how comedy can work across borders. Uh, how people dealt with uh, death in the past year and a half during uh, this whole pandemic and how uh, people react to Drago's comedy. And um, and before we, we leave our audience, Drago's, where, where, can, uh, where can our listeners uh, follow you and uh, how can they uh, find you? Uh, you can find me on, at, at Dragos Comedy everywhere. So D-R-A-G-O-S Comedy, uh, C-O-M-E-D-Y. Dragos Comedy on Instagram, on Facebook, on YouTube, on TikTok, everywhere. Follow me everywhere. Send me messages. Send me dudes. Make sure to follow him. And thank you all very much for listening to this Europe Matters podcast. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a nice one. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Europe Matters. Special thanks goes to my assistant producer, Antonio Mattesini. Let us know who we should interview next by writing a comment and sharing it with your friends on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn using the handle at Europe Matters. Don't forget to leave a review on whichever podcast streaming platform you use. And if you really like this show, the best way to support us is by making a donation on patreon.com. You can learn more at www.europematters.com. Speak to you soon. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.